0: What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? Today on Sports 360, we'll be talking with attorney Richard Giller, who will give us the basics on loss of value insurance. What is loss of value insurance? Well, simply put, it's an insurance policy that protects an athlete who signs a contract that is lower than expected due to a significant injury suffered during the policy's coverage period. It's an important tool that every player, agent, and those who care about players should be aware of. And we're about to get into it right now on Sports 360. joined today by attorney Richard Giller. Richard is a partner in the law firm of Reed Smith and he joins us today to talk about loss of value insurance. Now if you don't know what loss of value insurance is or how it works, you will at the end of this segment because Richard is one of the top loss of value practitioners in the business. Uh, Richard, thanks for Uh, Joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks
1: for inviting me to talk about the exciting world of insurance, Jeff. (laughs) And, you know, on that
0: point, you know, I'm sure, Richard, that there are a number of people that when they hear the topic of insurance, their reaction is similar to my reaction when I hear the topic of tax law, right? Immediately my eyes begin uh, to glaze over. Um, But, but, but I do believe that when it comes to uh loss of value insurance for athletes, whether collegiate athletes or professional athletes, and and today we'll talk more about collegiate athletes. I think it's a fascinating topic, but also an important topic for players and their representatives to understand. So I'm really I'm really glad that, that you're gonna be here today to lend some clarity to this topic.
1: Yeah, I always like um, to say if I mentioned that I'm an insurance lawyer at a cocktail party, people start moving away from me. But once I say that I represent policyholders and sue insurance companies, they all start coming back because everybody, everybody has a personal insurance issue that they've come across and have been mistreated by an insurance carrier now and the, now and again. So, and this topic is is very interesting and it's exceptionally near and dear to my heart. So, I'm sure. glad glad to chat about it.
0: Sure. And and you're right. You know, most people have some, you know, experience dealing with in, in insurance companies. But let, let's get into the loss of value. Let's jump right in. And if you could, without getting too bogged down in the details, why don't we start with a description of what a loss of value policy is and how it
1: how it works? Be glad to. Um most people know what a disability policy is, and there are a couple of forms of disability policies. The most common form is something called permanent total disability. So if you suffer some sort of injury or accident and you're not able to perform your job anymore, uh, that policy pays you off um, because of the permanent injury you've sustained. That's called a PTD policy and loss of value coverage is offered as a rider or an endorsement onto a PTD policy, and what it does is it serves as a hedge against you getting injured as an athlete, either in your last year of eligibility in college or before you can declare for the draft, or if you're a professional athlete and you're about to make a big contract jump. What it does is it ensures the difference between the anticipated value of your first or next professional contract and the value of the contract you actually signed because you were injured and the contract value dropped. You don't get 100%. They don't insure 100% of the difference, but they do insure 60%. So let's say you're coming out of college as a football player and you're expected to sign a $20 million deal. Um, The insurance carriers will look, try and figure out if that's an accurate assessment of your draft status. Then they'll offer you what's called a threshold amount, which is generally 60% of that anticipated contract. So in that example I just gave you, it'd be a $12 million threshold. And if the athlete were to get injured in his final collegiate season, drop in the draft, and only sign a contract for 10 million, let's say, um, he has a potential claim for the difference between the $12 million threshold amount in the loss of value policy and the $10 million contract he signed. So in other words, he'd have up to a $2 million loss, depending on how much insurance coverage, what the limits were of his LOV policy.
0: Now, in terms of the assessment of the player's value, I'm sure the player and his representative will provide the insurance company with what they believe that player will get on the contract market. How does the insurance company go about making its assessment as to whether that number is within the
1: realm of reason. So let's step back for a second. You know, I mentioned earlier that that most people have had some insurance issue in their lifetime that that they want to talk to me about. But the funny thing is, is most of these college athletes have never even looked at an insurance policy, never looked at a contract, Mm -hmm. most likely in their lives. So they're at an interesting disadvantage in that regard um nine times out of ten maybe 99 times out of 100 the athlete never has any conversations with um the insurance company or its representative so this leads us to sort of the cast of characters or who's involved here okay most of the insurance policies for loss of value coverage uh are written by lloyds and lloyds is not an insurance company it's actually a a marketplace where syndicates can get together and, and pool their assets and, and decide to insure or issue an insurance policy. But we'll just treat it for purposes of this conversation as an insurance company. So Lloyds offers this coverage, a company called Houston Casualty Company does it, HCC. And I'm familiar with another one, North American Capacity Insurance. And um, so unlike an automobile policy, you the athlete can't just go online and, and obtain a quote for coverage or the limits. So he has to work through two layers before he could even get to Lloyd's or any of these other carriers. The first layer is a, what's called a retail broker. That's the broker who would deal directly with the school or in professional athlete cases with the athletes or their financial advisors, um, or their agents. And then the retail broker has to reach out to what's called a wholesale broker, who in some instances acts as the agent slash representative for the insurance company. And that wholesale broker is the one who has most of the conversations with the insurance company itself. And so the agent or financial advisor may say, we think we have a athlete who's going to sign up. Let's use the example I used before, you know, a four, mil, four year, $20 million deal so a $5 million a year deal, and then the wholesale broker passes that on to the insurance carrier, and the insurance carrier should investigate. In my experience, all they do is, if they trust the broker they've been dealing with, then they accept it, or they might say, we think it's more like, you know, 19 million. But the insurance company itself does very little underwriting of these types of policies, at least as I've seen in all the cases I've handled.
0: Got it, okay. Now, generally speaking, Richard, who are these policies for? Is this just for the star players the top draft choices, or should other players consider
1: getting a loss of value policy? That's a great question i'm I'm a big proponent of every athlete, given their limited professional livelihood uh you know terms in terms of how many years they could play um getting disability coverage um whenever and, and however often they can. Loss of value as an as an additional coverage component. For a college athlete, um, you know, only about one point five of Division I athletes go on to become professional athletes. And so the NCAA has some guidelines and they propose that loss of value is really only designed for first-round draft picks or anticipated first-round draft picks in NBA or WNBA and uh, baseball first-round draft picks. And with respect to the football and hockey players, they think that loss of value is really best suited for first, second, or third-round picks. As for (laughs) professional athletes, I would suggest getting a policy, loss of value policy, anytime you anticipate a significant jump in your earnings. So, you know, first year of salary arbitration eligibility or, free agency or restricted free agent or, you know, any of those levels on any of the sports where you're going to go from, you know, team friendly contracts in the first three, four years into player friendly contracts. And those are the, that's the best time for professional athletes to look for this type of coverage. Okay. Now using your
0: example earlier of the $20 million uh, policy, Um, or the anticipation of a $20 million contract and you're looking for coverage in that regard. And I don't know if it's called a $20 million policy or $12 million policy based on your example, but if we use the contract figure of $20 million, how much would a policy like that cost?
1: So the premiums are, are sort of done on a per million dollars worth of coverage basis. So let's take the example a $20 million uh, anticipated contract doesn't really come into play in terms of how much the policy premium is going to be. The premium is how much insurance coverage you're going to get. So if if you're a first-round draft pick uh, in the NFL and you think you're a top-20 pick, uh, you might want to get $5 million worth of disability and $5 million worth of loss of value coverage. The interesting thing about that, Jeff, is that those two coverages are mutually exclusive. In other words, you can't recover five million PTD and five million of loss of value because you're either injured and can never play again, or you're injured and your contract just was diminished. So okay. they're mutually exclusive coverages. But we would describe that as a ten million dollar policy comprised of five million of PTD and five million of LOV. Okay. And if if you have a ten million dollar policy, um the, the premium varies depending on the on the sport, so football not shockingly premium policy costs are a little greater than basketball so if you want to get ptd coverage for football it's about seven thousand dollars per million and and to get the additional loss of value it's another four thousand per million so if you had a ten million dollar policy that would translate to about fifty five thousand dollar premium and with basketball you're looking at four million, I mean sorry, four thousand per million for PTD and three thousand per million for L O V. So the same ten million dollar policy that would cost a football player fifty five grand would cost a basketball uh player thirty five thousand. Mm. And obviously the more policy limits the higher the premium. And the other the other thing I should mention is that the loss of value, limit of liability can never be higher than the permanent total disability limit of liability, and oftentimes it's less than, because you don't anticipate a drop in coverage. But if you were to never play again, you'd want to make sure you had, you know, a significant amount of money in the and in, in the policy premium limits. Sure.
0: Now, for a college player, those numbers that you just gave in terms of the premium are very high. I mean, they're very high, generally speaking, but, you know, for a college player, um, you know, we've heard stories of college players, you know, who say they go to bed hungry because they don't, you know, don't have, uh, enough money, um, to, to eat. Um, so how does a college player go about securing a policy that has such a high premium attached to it?
1: Uh, that's another excellent question and point. Um, so, uh... The NCAA ruled a few years ago, first took the position that college athletes could not borrow against their future earnings to pay premiums like this. They reversed themselves about four years ago and said, you know what, that's not really fair. We can let you borrow against your future earnings so you can go to any bank and say, you know, I anticipate being a first round draft pick and my, my, contract's probably going to be $20 million. I would like to take out an insurance policy, so I need to borrow, you know, 55000 and secure it against your future earnings. Most of the brokers that deal in this insurance space have connections with lending facilities to, to make those loans. The other option for college athletes is that the NCAA ruled a couple of years ago that schools could actually purchase the policies on behalf of the player. So I'm in Los Angeles, so let's use USC, for example. If they had a player that was going to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL, um, the school could decide to use money out of something called the Student Assistance Fund, which is a fund of money provided by the NCAA to each participating school, take that money and and pay the policy premium for a particular athlete. Oregon did it a few years ago for three of their star players when Mariota was quarterback. And so um, the policy premium is paid by the school in that instance on behalf of the player. The player is the policyholder and the beneficiary under the insurance policy, but the school writes the check. Mm, okay. Now, now there are some, there are some, <laughs> some mm-hmm. interesting questions. Sorry, Jeff. Um, okay. That that come up with that, and and one of the big unanswered questions in that regard is, as, as a I'm not a tax attorney, so mm-hmm. take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> but my understanding is that if if an individual uses after tax dollars to buy a disability policy for him or herself, and you suffer a disability and you start getting payments from that disability policy, the benefits are tax free. As a general proposition, if your employer buys the policy on your behalf and uses pre-tax dollars to do it, um, the IRS has uh, ruled that any benefits obtained under that type of policy purchased by your employer would be taxable. Mm. And that's a significant difference for a professional athlete because, you know, most of these guys are taxed at 50 to 55 percent. And so... The unanswered question is if the school, who is not an employer, as has been ruled by at least a couple of courts, right. but if the school pays the premium using pre or after-tax dollars, would be the big question. You know, what are the tax consequences to the student athlete? My argument would be the student athlete should probably indicate on his or her tax return for that year that that he received a gift. In the amount of the policy premium, then pay tax on the policy premium,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which would potentially transform any post-claim payouts into what it should be, and that's tax-free uh, settlement or, or judgment. Okay, it's too complicated um, to go much further, but no, but it's an issue I... that
0: that they have to think about. Sure, sure. And so, let me ask you this: let let's. If we could, and, and if this makes sense, if it doesn't, let me know. But in terms of the process of, you know, I'm a player, let's say I'm a player and I and I want to explore obtaining a policy. Um, what are the things that I should do, you know, initially? And, and what are the things that I should expect will be part of the application process?
1: So if you're a, a college athlete, you should go to the athletic department um, and tell your coach or, or somebody in the athletic department, you know, Hey guys, it looks like I got a shot at being a a top draft pick and I, and I want to ensure against the possibility I get hurt in my last season. So let's start the process. My suggestion in in that regard is that for, for example, for football players, college football players, they should probably start that process in the spring before they're, final year, because it gives you a little more time. Too often in some of the cases I've dealt with, it's it's something that's rushed into in August or July, right before the season starts, and then there's some issues that can arise with that. And then what generally happens with the Autonomy 5 you know, conferences is someone in the compliance, athletic compliance office or department of the respective school should probably, would probably be responsible for helping the student-athlete through the process, contacting a broker or brokers that the school has dealings with or has dealt with in the past, and helping them with the application process. Because that application process is, in my view, antiquated and, and kind of absurd for, for student-athletes and professional athletes.
0: And when you say that, what do you mean? It's absurd in what way?
1: Well... So it, it, the disability questions that appear on the PTD LOV policies that athletes fill out are basically the same questions that you or I would fill out. <laughs> and if if somebody were to ask me, you know, have you ever been injured in the last 24 months? I might think of every time I twisted my ankle or or pulled my shoulder or, or did something and list it. If you ask a Division One autonomy five college football player if they've been injured they have an entirely different definition in their own mind of what an injury is they're injured if they miss playing time in a game but they're not going to be able to list every time they turned an ankle or tweaked an elbow or you know jammed a finger in somebody's face mask Um, but for the insurance companies that could constitute an injury and so there's there's sort of a disconnect between the policy application and how student athletes and professional athletes answer them. <laughs> and some of the questions on the policies are like you know within the last 24 months have you taken any over the counter anti-inflammatory medication
0: hmm. and, and, <laughs> and right.
1: my guess is that you know 99% of uh of the uh D1 football players would have to say, you know, how many times a day rather than how many times in the last 24 months. So
0: so that's interesting though, right? Because I would imagine that the answers to these questions could uh, do play a role if later on the player files a claim, correct? I mean, it's it's one of
1: the, it's one of the primary, Defenses, every carrier in every claim I've ever dealt with has tried to hang its hat on. Yes. And and so people need to have a better understanding of how the application process works and should work um, and because, you know, and again, there's a difference between, you know, college athletes and professional athletes, but sometimes... If a if a pro athlete goes into a trainer's office or a doctor and he says you know I, my shoulder hurts and they they take an MRI, the player almost never sees the MRI results. He just listens to what the team doctor or the or the athletic trainer tells them and and then rehabs. When in fact the MRI could have shown something more significant. So then when that player takes out an LOV PTD policy and and answers these medical questions, he could you know list shoulder injuries, for example, and list how many times he's had them. And then when the insurance company goes through the medical records after a claim is filed with a fine-tooth comb, they find, you know, something in the medical records that wasn't disclosed on the application, and then they deny the claim. And that happens on almost every claim I've dealt with. This is, you would assume, I think it's a reasonable assumption for an athlete in a compliance office and a financial advisor, anybody in this, working in this space to believe that if I list, I being the athlete, five injuries on my application, that should put the insurance company on notice that maybe you should investigate that, especially when the application requires the athlete to sign a HIPAA release and give them authorization to, to look through all their medical records. And in some instances, the application actually says, you know, we won't make a decision on your policy until we've looked at your records. Unfortunately, case law, not in the athlete space, but generally allows an insurance company to rely on the answers in the application and to conduct basically no investigation before they issue the policy. Oh. California has, has a statute that doesn't allow that. And some other states are very adamant that in with respect to, health and disabilities insurance policies like these, what they describe as post claim underwriting is absolutely prohibited, but there are other States where the law isn't as well developed. And, you know, because of all of this, my advice to people, any athlete thinking about taking out one of these policies is be over, overly inclusive and, um, provide as much information and including medical records to the insurance company while during the application process.
0: Right. To hopefully avoid or minimize the failure to disclose a uh, position or, uh, that the insurance company may take later. Hey, Richard, let me ask you this. At what point do you get involved? I mean, are you there when a claim is denied? And and now you represent a client or are you available to a player or his representative um, earlier on in the process?
1: So when we started our little chat, we talked, we kind of joked about insurance and how nobody really wants to deal with it. And unfortunately that's true. Nobody thinks about the arcane and sometimes archaic language that insurance companies use in these policies. And, and as with any, contract dispute. It's all about what the policy says in terms of whether something is covered or is not covered. So I I am available and I recommend to everybody that they should try and have a lawyer involved at the earliest possible stage in procuring the policy to review the policy language at the outset and say, you know, I don't like that definition or I don't like that exclusion and, and try and negotiate the terms up front. Unfortunately, Every case I've dealt with, and I've I've done quite a number of these, um, I'm always called after the insurance companies denied the claim,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then you get the interesting issues that you gotta you know fight and and come up with good arguments about because some of these insurance companies I don't believe understand American sports as well as they probably should have. I had a baseball case one time, and and the the policy talked about mini camps, which of course only applies in professional football that didn't talk about preseason. So, um, you know, those types of things are something a a experienced lawyer in this space would would have caught at the outset. And I got to tell you, you know, some of the definitions of injury that are in Mm -hmm. some of these policies, um, or defining loss of value as requiring a certain number of games or a certain number of weeks you missed. Um, Those are all things that, you know, I would probably point out to someone trying to purchase a policy like that before they actually purchase the policy.
0: Right. Yeah. Because as you said, I mean, the language is so important, right? It determines what's covered and bases for denial and and all the rest of it.
1: Well, yeah. Um, The the difference between the two types of coverage is is a temporal one. Permanent total disability means you can never play again Um, and you get a one-time payment and, and that's got to help you out. Loss of value is really supposed to be, I got injured, my injury caused me to get a contract for less than we all thought I would get, and you're supposed to cover the delta. And yet, in some of these policies, the definition of injury for loss of value talks about substantial and material permanent deterioration of your abilities, which Sure, sounds more like the PTD side of the policy than the LOV side. And again, that's something that you know should be your broker should negotiate that. But you know, a, a lawyer who's actually dealt with the claims and and gone to court and and mediated these types of losses is going to see that m- more quickly than most uh, brokers would ever see, and certainly before any compliance officer would un- notice it.
0: Sure, I mean so the the idea then that we we simply say, "Well, if you're injured, then x, y, and z happens is not the case. It's the definition of injury, and that could that that could get a little bit more involved than maybe people would think at the outset correct um yeah, so you you talked a little bit about some of the you know denial of claims I mean insurance companies are notorious for denying claims. uh we all experience that, whether it's homeowners insurance, car insurance, you name it um, so failure to disclose is one of them are there other are there other areas that are more prevalent than than some uh in terms of reasons that insurance companies in the l o v context use to deny claims?
1: There are a handful of others. I, I would say misrepresentations on the application regarding injury history is probably tops among them. But right behind that, oftentimes insurance carriers in this space make the argument that they were somehow misled by whomever, whether it's the retail broker or the wholesale broker or an agent or financial advisor regarding the threshold amount, regarding what we talked about earlier, which is what's the anticipated contract value that's that's a big issue and then the other issues that come up uh involved whether the loss meaning the drop in contract value was solely because of the of a single injury and then sort of hand in hand with that one is i, I had a case one time involving a major league baseball pitcher who who pitched for a number of years and um in his last season he blew out his shoulder he couldn't he couldn't hit the strike zone anymore. He lost, you know, eight miles an hour in his velocity, and and he couldn't be a professional pitcher anymore. So he had a permanent total disability claim. And the insurance company actually took the position that it wasn't a single injury blowing out his shoulder. But instead, that shoulder injury was a result of cumulative micro-traumas because of, and this is what still floors me every time I mention this, <laughs> micro-traumas as a result of repetitive overhand throwing motions. <laughs> exactly, and so you sit there and you go, "Are you serious?" I mean, you issued a policy to a guy whose entire life is repetitive overhand throwing motions, <laughs> and now you're going to exclude coverage because he got hurt doing what you insured him to do. And and but that those types of arguments come up: cumulative injuries. Right. Okay. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that's a good one. That, that that's... was. It wasn't a great one for the athlete, but it's a funny one to talk about because it's sure. a it's an absurd position. Sure. Now, Richard, one of the
0: criticisms that I, I've heard, and I'm sure you have given all your experience with this um, early on anyway, was that it was great to say you had insurance as a player, but when you had to file a claim, there was difficulty in getting claims paid. Now I've seen in recent years more players, particularly in football, uh, but I know of some others that are actually getting claims paid. Uh, so there seems to have been a shift or some development in that regard that's positive for players. Uh, to what do you attribute that change to the extent it exists out there?
1: Yeah, and you're right, there there has been a shift. Um, every claim I've ever handled has obtained a substantial payout under the policies. They, They tend not to get publicized because most settlement agreements require confidentiality where you're not allowed to talk about how much you settled for. I have done my best in those cases to include a provision that says we can disclose the fact of settlement, but not the amount. And and that helps the athletes understand that they're, you know, these claims are getting paid, but I think the shift is, is really, there's probably three primary reasons for it. First is once the student assistance fund money became available to schools to buy these policies, there's sort of a pot of gold out there. And all of a sudden brokers and insurance companies are thinking, you know, we'll write policies for fourth, fifth, and sixth round draft picks, even though they, they don't, they shouldn't be buying the policies. We'll just collect the premiums. So the premium pot of gold has is, is gotten significantly larger. I also think that insurance companies sort of like, writing these kinds of policies, sort of the idea of rubbing elbows with um, athletes, professional athletes. Everybody sort of has, you know, the celebrity complex these days and and insurance companies aren't immune to that either. And then the third one, of course, is superior lawyer, lawyering. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That's really (laughs) the main reason that these policies are getting paid off. Sure.
0: As you get more experience, um, Lawyers and uh, involved, and I'm sure that helps in in, in the process. So, so, Richard, any did you have any any news to share? New developments, parting tips that you would uh, give to a player or an agent um, uh, who may be thinking about a loss of value policy, or parent, or whoever uh, who cares about a player. Um, any 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 last tips that you might give to someone at this stage? I know there's a lot more that we haven't touched upon, but we did cover quite a bit.
1: Yeah. And and if people are still listening after, as long as we've been going about insurance, which I hope they are, Jeff, um, (laughs) um, (laughs) there are, there are some, some tips and what I would call new developments. And we talked about one of them, which is the idea of consulting with a, a legal counsel as early in the process as possible. That would help, in the entire payout process. Um, and I, I, there are two major ones I would say. I think professional athletes or financial advisors, agents, whomever, as you said, whoever is is you know worrying about and caring for the athletes and getting this coverage need to do their due diligence because there are, like in every industry, there are reputable wholesale brokers who deal with insurance companies and there are some that don't seem quite as reputable as others, and so sort of like you know, unfortunately, there's no better business bureau for insurance brokers. But you know, if somebody were to run a Google search or do some legal research and find out what brokers have been sued and and not been sued, and what are the results of those claims, and and so due diligence in trying to select a, a reputable, skilled, and experienced retail and wholesale broker would be my first step. And this is – the, the other, next one is something that really was highlighted by a case just filed a few months ago, and that is the brokers, the compliance officers, whomever, they must demand to get a copy of the actual policy as soon as the policy begins, which as a cover hold, coverage holder I call the point of inception of the coverage. And so – At inception, they need a copy of the policy in their hand Mm -hmm. because there is a recent case. uh, There's a running back for Arkansas. His name's Raleigh Williams. And and he suffered a pretty bad neck injury, uh, I think, as a sophomore. Recovered well from it, had a great sophomore season. Everybody was looking for his junior season to be a big breakout season and a high draft pick in the NFL. Unfortunately... He injured his neck in a different area, different vertebrae in spring of the uh, spring practice before his junior season. Fortunately, he had purchased a loss of value policy that that started on March 16th of okay. 2017. He gets hurt on April 29th. Um, his retail broker calls his dad and and in the hospital and says, you know, hope everything's great but but just so you know we've got coverage for this and everything's in force and there should be no issues. Well, shockingly there was an issue. Um, so that was April 29th when he when he had suffered a serious neck injury and May 8th he decides he's got to retire from football because he just, you know, it's either the potential paralysis or or give up the game he loves. So he gave up the game he loves. And the day after he announced his retirement, his retail broker sends an email saying, oh, the policy was issued with the final wording yesterday. And included in the policy was an exclusion dated three days after he injured his neck and six weeks after the policy began that purported to exclude all coverage for any spinal cord injuries or related structures. And so you don't want to be in that situation. You don't want to be two, three, four, six months down the road after you've purchased a policy and say, hey, you know, where's my policy? And then you get the policy and you say, we didn't negotiate that. That exclusion wasn't part of our negotiations. You need the policy, a copy of the policy right at inception or as soon thereafter as you can.
0: Uh-huh.
1: That would be one of the big takeaways. Wow. Because what happens is you, you ask for a quote. They get a quote. You decide you're going to go with this particular insurance company you pay the premium, you get something called a certificate of conditional binder, which sort of tells you in summary, in general terms, what the policy covers. But without the actual wording, which is what every case then turns on later, you're kind of flying blind. So you need the policy as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a story.
0: What, what a story. Yep. Um, and what a lesson to, to take away um, going forward. Um, um, uh, so Richard, listen, I, uh, I, I appreciate you taking some time today to talk about this topic because, you know, whether it's scintillating or not, it's important and it, it really can add value, no pun intended to, to, to a player and, and, and protect that player, whether a college athlete or a professional athlete. So, um appreciate you taking some time to share with us today. If someone wanted to get a hold of you um, to find out more and to get more information, you know,
1: you, you, you want to give some contact information an email or something else? Sure. Um, the easiest way is to either look me up on LinkedIn, which is just under Richard Giller. I think I might be the only Richard Giller in the country. <laughs> okay. um, or you can go to uh, my firm's website, which is Reed, R-E-E-D, com, and then look me up there. And then, the last one would be rgiller at reedsmith.com is my email. So, and I'm, you know, my focus on all these claims is protecting the athletes. And so if someone just has a general question or, you know, wants more information or copies of my articles of which I think I have a couple dozen, I'm happy to talk to everybody and anybody who wants to just chat and um help in any way I can at every stage I can. Well, that's great. And and again, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that,
0: that you took the time to chat with us today. So thanks again, Richard. Thanks. Talk to you later, Jeff. All right. All right. Bye. Richard Giller provided a nice overview of loss of value insurance, but there are a number of additional layers to LOV that players and their representatives should know about. And I encourage you to take Richard up on his offer of reaching out to him to find out more. I have always found Richard to be generous with his time, knowledge, and resources. In addition to reaching out to Richard, also feel free to reach out to us if you like what you're hearing on Sports 360. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. That's it for this edition. I'm about to head home. But it looks like I'm going to be a little late. Scully just texted me. Seems he's stuck in traffic. But it's all good. So don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) You definitely don't know that song. But while I wait for Scully, why don't you Google it? And we can talk about it next time when we meet here again on Sports 360.